This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 336. What I try to do in the book is explain what it's like to build something that's truly new because most of us have never done this. And when we do it, it feels weird and the rules change. Hey there, thanks for checking in with me this week. You found the Read to Lead podcast. My name is Jeff Brown. It's the podcast dedicated to your personal and your professional growth. And I believe that if you want to achieve true success in your business and in your life, then you need to be an intentional and consistent reader. The Read to Lead podcast has been designed with that in mind to help you uh, walk away with key insights and main ideas from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. We chat about their latest book and their unique insights on things like personal and professional development, leadership, productivity, career, business, marketing, sales, entrepreneurship, and more. Entrepreneurship getting the emphasis today as we welcome Jim McKelvey, co-founder of Square and author of the Innovation Stack, Building an Unbeatable Business One Crazy Idea at a Time. Among other things, I'll be asking Jim to share how Square managed to survive a challenge from the almighty Amazon, the meaning of an innovation stack, and why it's one of the most powerful assets a company can possess, the secret to finding the perfect mentors, and plenty more. What I like so much about this book is captured on the inside back jacket of the book where it says, the innovation stack is an irreverent first person look inside the world of entrepreneurship and an inspiring business narrative that's much bigger than the story of Square. It's a call to action to find your entrepreneurial spirit and apply it to a real life problem, one crazy idea at a time. For the links and resources discussed in this episode, visit the show notes page that can be found at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 336. Jim McKelvey is a serial entrepreneur, inventor, philanthropist, and artist. As I mentioned, he co-founded Square and was chairman of its board until 2010 and still serves on the board of directors. In 2011, his iconic card reader design was inducted into the Museum of Modern Art. Jim has also founded Invisibly, a project to rewire the economics of online content, LaunchCode, a nonprofit that trains people to work in technology, and Third Degree Glass Factory, a publicly accessible glass art studio and education center in St. Louis. In 2017, he was appointed as an independent director of the St. Louis Federal Reserve. Well, his new book is one that I have read cover to cover. I promised him I would do that. I've got the markings in the dog-eared pages to prove it. I love the book. It's called The Innovation Stack, Building an Unbeatable Business, One Crazy Idea at a Time. His name is Jim McKelvey. Jim, welcome to Read Delete. Thank you, Jeff. This is going to be fun. Well, I think everybody should read this book, first of all, but particularly CEOs. I have a brother who happens to be a CEO and co-founder of a tech startup called Docket. DocketHQ.com is uh, where they're found. Uh, They recently won a Zoom uh, contest uh, for best, I think, Zoom marketplace app, I believe. But this is a book he's getting in the mail soon. He doesn't know this, but he's getting it in the mail soon because it's a book I definitely think people like him for sure should read. Before diving into some of the specifics of the book, Jim, I thought it'd be cool just to get kind of an overview of the overall premise and and what it was, kind of the history or story behind the thing that prompted you to write it in the first place. So uh, the premise was uh, my own confusion about something that happened in Square. <laughs> so after Square was about four years old, we were still basically a startup and mm-hmm. Amazon copied our product, undercut our price, and everyone expected us to die. And I mean, I, I mean, I have to say there were some people in the company that expected the same thing because no startup 
at the time had ever survived this attack by Amazon. And so we fought Amazon for about a year. Uh, Amazingly, we didn't change much of what we were doing. Actually, we didn't really change anything about what we were doing. And a year later, Amazon relented. And actually, in a cool way, they gave one of our little square card readers (laughs) to all of their soon-to-be former customers. So they just got out of the business entirely, handed us over all their customers. And uh, as much as I sort of hated Amazon for attacking us, I respect Amazon for the way they you know, sort of ended the battle. But it always bothered me. And as, as you say in the book, I think it's, it's hard to believe when looking back on it, but you did nothing, or may, maybe a better way to say it is you did nothing differently, I think. We did nothing differently. And, mm. and so I, I was perplexed. Look, I was happy we won, mm. but there was this nagging question of why. Like why it, it, it's 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 almost like you know the airliner <laughs> explodes mm. and you fall fifty thousand feet and you're fine. Like what in the like you? So I went on this. Took me two years. It, it was a two year quest of trying to find any other examples throughout history where this phenomenon had existed, and and I found them. And when I found them, I started seeing this pattern. And the pattern was what I describe in the book. It's just it's these companies who are trying to do things that have never been done before. And that's sort of the key. They build these innovation stacks, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute, and end up literally creating their own new markets, which they then dominate. And sometimes they become the biggest companies in the world. As a matter of fact, that that frequently happens. And I saw this pattern and I got super excited about it. But then I, so I'm a, I'm a scientist by training and I understand, you know, selection bias and all sorts of things that can mm. delude one into thinking you're right. So I was like, okay, all I've done is study history and all the people I'm studying are dead. <laughs> so they're not around to contradict me. So I needed to find somebody who was alive. Mm. And so I called Herb Kelleher. Now he's the founder of Southwest Airlines, a legendary man. And I flew down to Dallas and spent a day with Herb. And I basically took all my research. I wasn't planning to write a book necessarily at the time. I just had all of this research. And I said, Herb, is this what happened to Southwest? Because I think what happened to Square also happened to Southwest mm. and happened to all these other companies. And Herb got real excited. And he said, yes. He's like, I, he said, I hadn't thought about it like this way before, but this is exactly what happened to us. And and Herb told me to go out and that I needed to share this with the world. Mm. So, you know, uh, Herb was a uh, he, he had this sort of uh, deity-like stature <laughs> in my in 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 my world, and and when you know one of your idols tells you to do something, you run off and do it. <laughs> so that's how it became a project, but it didn't become a book. I wrote a graphic novel. So when Herb told me to do something, I, the last thing I wanted to do was write a business book because <laughs> I, I mean I'm sure you know this. Like a lot of them are tough to read. Mm. And I was like, oh, God, I can't write a business book. It'll put everyone to sleep. So uh, so I wrote a comic book. I, I, I did the whole thing as a comic, graphic novels, you know, lots of – I mean, there's a lot of drama in the stories, so it sort of lent itself to pen and ink. And um, took me about a year. And after I was, you know, sort of halfway through it, I called up Herb and I said, you're going to love this. I was like, we're doing the whole thing as a graphic novel. And he hated the idea. <laughs> And he told me, he said, look, Jim, I can't stop you from doing it that way, but what I can do is ask you to leave me out. Mm. And I was not going to leave Herb Kelleher out of this book. So mm. I rewrote it as a regular business book, but I kept one of the chapters as a graphic novel anyway. So you can you can get that for free. I'll give it to you on, on my website. But that's how the book came to be. And mm. um, unfortunately, I didn't get it finished uh, before Herb died. So mm. I got to show him the final project. Uh, I, I hate to hear that, but as business books go, it's uh, one of the most enjoyable that I've read in some time. I mean, the, the footnotes alone are like little Easter eggs <laughs> along the way. <laughs> Did you catch the dirty joke? Did you catch the? I, I won't actually. I won't spoil it for you. There is a there is a viciously dirty joke in the book that I 
I was expecting, I wrote it and then I immediately erased it. Cause I was mm. like, Oh, this is, this is too terrible. Mm. Um, and then I thought, no, 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 I'll give my editor some fun because editors love catching stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I left it in figuring my editor would get it. Well, little did I know that my editor had already taken another job. So he was basically checked out <laughs> and he didn't, he didn't read it. I mean, I think he basically phoned it in. Like the last third of the book was basically unedited and <laughs> he didn't catch the joke. He didn't catch it. <laughs> That's and, great. And, you know, and after it's like in print, you know, I, I, I fessed up and, but it's, it, the good news is it's, it's, you have to have sort of a sick mind to get the mm-hmm. joke. But if, if you're like me, you'll, it'll leap off the page and you'll be like, oh my God, I can't believe Penguin did this. But they did, so there you go. Well, I, I certainly <laughs> read every word, but I the idea or the, the thought of a dirty joke doesn't register, so it, it okay. must have gone over my head. You must not be raising a nine-year-old boy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, uh, you you touched on innovation stack uh, for for context for the rest of our conversation. I'd love to to dive into that a little more deeply if we could. What is that exactly uh, as you describe it, and 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 why is it something that you feel is one of the most powerful assets a company can possess? So it's how new industries start. If you look at what an invention is, it's typically not one or two or even three things. It's typically a dozen things. So you look at the beginning of a new industry. uh, In in our case, it was credit card processing. In Herb's case, it was a discount airline. But it wasn't like Southwest Airlines just said, oh, well, we're going to sell airline seats cheaper than United. They did 20 things that the other airlines were not doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Square did 14 things that no other credit card company had ever done. And, you know, Bank of America did 20 things. Uh, they used to be called Bank of Italy, but in the early days, mm-hmm. they were the most revolutionary bank in the world. And they became the biggest bank in the world. And they became it on, on top of this thing called an innovation stack. And I had to coin this term because there was no way to otherwise describe the process of innovation and how little things fit together and influence each other. And, mm-hmm. and look, I, I know that I myself has always been sort of intimidated by these, you know, big companies with great ideas and great products. But when I started building on myself, what I noticed was the process actually isn't that intimidating. What it is, is uh, it's tiresome. It's Mm. tedious. It's like a lot of little bits, but none of the little bits are that complicated. And so when I dissect these companies and explain it to the reader, I mean, it's almost boring. Like, it's almost like, oh, yeah, of course. Oh, yeah, obviously. (laughs) But when you put all these things together, you get this very weird alchemy where, Mm. you know, with 14 different things that you're doing, each thing influences all the other things. And you have literally several billion sub interactions between them. And it becomes this its own thing. And that's the power of the innovation stack. And that's why Square survived Amazon. I'm absolutely convinced. Yeah, I was just going to say something to, along those lines. They they came in lowering the price, which was something you couldn't do if you wanted, nor did you desire to do that, because then what does that say to your customers? But they couldn't possibly copy all those other things. Right. The, the thing about the innovation stack is that from the outside, it, you may look like you're doing two or three things publicly. But if you're actually building one of these things, you realize that there's like an iceberg. 90% of the surface <laughs> is hidden. And so... I think when Amazon copied us, they copied what they could see. They, they tried to copy our hardware. They kind of copied our software. They did a lot of the things outwardly that they thought Square was doing. What they didn't see, because, of course, they were copying and not building it themselves, were the dozen other things that were hidden from sight. And I don't think they did those correctly. Mm. And I think the market punished them. And in payments, you can literally lose a lot of money mm. if you don't get 
things like fraud and compliance and KYC and OFAC and uh, the card network's rules and all that stuff right, it will be a very painful and expensive uh, lesson. Uh, share, if you would, Jim, uh, some of those components of, of Square's early innovation stack. I mean, maybe some things that today we kind of take for granted, but then were fairly uh, revolutionary, or at the very least, I mean, I think about the things you had to do, the laws you had to break, if you will, <laughs> yes. just to be able to do some of the things you did. Well, yeah, so we'll talk about breaking uh, the laws in a minute, but so I'll describe how just one innovation or trying to do something that sounds simple really is a complex mess. And I'll sort of talk about three or four elements of the stack as I do it, because I think it's important for the listener to understand, you know, sort of how these things happen. So the first thing uh, that Jack and I thought we would do would be to figure out what we would charge for our service. Okay, so what's it going to cost? Mm. And the answer in the credit card world when we started was nobody knows. Like <laughs> nobody knows what a credit card costs when you run it. No retailer, even Walmart, because I talked to the head of Walmart payments and, uh, you know, my cook who runs Walmart's payment told me they couldn't tell with precision what any charge would cost because of the Byzantine rules that the card networks have. Okay, mm. so so we're not going to start a company with some crazy price pricing structure that takes five pages to even still not explain. So we just said, okay, we're going to have a flat price, uh, 2.75% percentage of the transaction. You think that's simple? Well, turns out, no. Mm. Because in fact, we have to connect to the card networks and the card networks don't have simple pricing. They have this Byzantine structure, which has a fixed part and a variable part. And if you are any good at math, you'll know that with a fixed cost, on anything, you will guarantee losing money on certain transactions. In mm. Square's case, about $5 was the uh, smallest transaction where we could be, you know, break even. Anything under a $5 charge, we would actually lose money because of the fixed costs. So this did a couple of things. First of all, it necessitated that we had tremendous volume mm. because now you have to get volume and we have to get the net size of the charges up. So we have to do volume with a certain type of individual who's, you know, going to sell larger ticket items, which means we need to sign up people really fast. So we decided to make our service free, uh, including the hardware, which then put a ton of pressure on us to develop cheap hardware. Uh, so I was the guy that built the hardware. And at the time, a mobile credit card reader cost about $970. Mm. And our reader cost 97 cents. <laughs> so we were one one thousandth the cost <laughs> of the current product. So we were like, well, if we're that cheap, let's just give it away. So, but then when you start giving stuff away free, all of a sudden you get all this people, all these people who sign up and never use the product. So, mm. so we had to make it super easy to service them. So we had to come up with different customer service and the customer service was, was not something we could put live humans on. So we had to make the software super simple. So we had to cut out some things that, you know, features you would otherwise might want to have, but we didn't have them. And we made it just so easy for mm. the user to sign up themselves. But that meant we had to have an online sign-up process, which meant that we couldn't have a physical wet signature ink contract, which, of course, all the banks required. So now we can't connect to the banks because they won't work with us because we're just using this online sign-up agreement. So so now we have to do our own underwriting. Well, how the hell are we going to do that? Well, that means we have to have our own finance structure, but we can't do the finance structure unless we're going to have our own risk and fraud and, and on and on and on. So like just starting from one little thing makes the innovation stack almost necessary. Mm. And it's 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 incredibly powerful. And you see this pattern again and again and again with great companies. And you, you end up in this whole process creates problems. Each element of the innovation stack or many create new problems that then have to be solved along the way. Hence, 
more and more height to the stack, basically. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and by the way, like what I just described doesn't warrant a book. Like, okay, duh, you got it. Don't, don't buy my book for that because you can you know, save yourself 20 bucks, right? But what I've noticed, and this is sort of the key theme of the book, and I guess if you understand this, you will also not have to buy it. But the, the key theme is that innovation is almost always a last resort. And you sit there and say, oh, I'm an innovative person. Probably not. Like if you're if you're a normal human being, you are a very, very good copier. We're all very good copiers. Mm. All the things you see in your world. I mean, I'm looking in my I'm sitting in my brother's bedroom making this podcast right now. I'm literally everything in this room from the bed to the floor to the walls to me to the windows, like everything is derivative. Nothing is original. I'm, mm. I'm not original. I was copies of my parents, you know. So <laughs> copying is so wired into the universe that it feels incredibly difficult when you actually start doing things where there is nothing to copy from. And so what I try to do in the book is I try to explain what it's like to build something that's truly new because most of us have never done this. And when we do it, it feels weird and the rules change. And that's sort of the other thing, which is that if you're building something new, then all of the stuff that serves you well as a copier in some cases, backfires. And sometimes it's it's the opposite of what you want to do. And so I go into a bunch of theory about, oh, look, you know, we've been taught our whole life to behave this way in business, except if you have an innovation stack, in which case you do the opposite. You know, so I had to go through that because these patterns, like it's again and again and again, these companies with innovation stacks, they, they have to do things differently. You you mentioned earlier about you know, finding present day examples of what Slack was experiencing and going through was extremely rare. Southwest may have been one of the only present day examples that existed. Your journey to finding mentors led you to the past. Talk a bit about that process and the companies that it led you to. Uh, yes. Yeah, so my my search for a mentor, <laughs> honestly, that was that was one of the reasons I was so excited to meet Herb Kelleher because he would have been a great mentor. Like if I'd met him when I was, you know, sort of starting out in business and had somebody like that who was actually doing innovation because I sought out great business people as my mentors when I was young and, you know, starting. And I always got terrible advice from them. And it wasn't (laughs) that they were giving me bad advice intentionally, is that they were giving me good advice for people who were doing something the opposite of what I was doing. Mm. And I didn't realize that copying was so antithetical to innovation. But in fact, most good business people have very good processes that they are used to running. And because they're so good at running them, they know those processes work, their businesses succeed. That's why you get, you know, super successful. That's why you become these, you know, high powered CEOs, except in the case when you're sitting on an innovation stack, in which case a lot of the stuff works backwards. Hmm. And so my search for a mentor was completely fruitless <laughs> until one day, and, and I'd, I'd, I'd given up, like I'd given up looking for mentors or advisors man, 15 years ago. Like mm. I was, I was, I was done with it because it just never worked. But then I was, uh, I was actually at a big party in Spain and it was, it was in this palace. I mean, literally this old mm. family in Spain had this palace and, and they rented it out for parties, right? Cause they were <laughs> broke. Um, so you could go like buy the palace for a week or for a weekend or something. Um, anyway, but I was in their library and I saw the original letters from Christopher Columbus and this family had backed Christopher Columbus's wow. expedition. I mean, they were his venture capitalists. And I was I was thinking about it. And I was I was looking at these letters of Columbus and I was just mesmerized. I thought, you know, like I think I was taking risk by starting a company. I, I nobody at Square was gonna die if Jack and I failed. Like <laughs> 
nobody at Southwest was going to die if, you know, their airline didn't uh, succeed. Like there were very few sort of life and death consequences to Mm -hmm. failure in my world. But here's a guy who's raising money and men to go on a journey in a direction where nobody's gone before. And I thought about the risk taking and all of a sudden I realized that, oh my God, I can't look for mentors among the living. I should look for my mentors among history's greats because it seemed to me that there would be a correlation with outlandish success and history noting that you were there. Mm. And in fact, that's the case. Like if you look at the people who we chronicle in the history books, they're people who are incredibly successful or, you know, incredibly bad or incredibly, but there's an incredible somewhere in their biography. And so I started looking through history and booyah, like there was a (laughs) treasure trove of examples. As a matter of fact, I had so many examples of innovation stacks throughout history that I was like, oh my God, like I've got way too much material. So I Mm. was super selective in the stories that I tell in the book. It's all, it's all just a bunch of stories uh, because I mean, it like it was a graphic novel, so they had to be stories. So (laughs) I've I got one with Nazis. There's some Nazis in there. There's a burning city. There's an earthquake. There's a murder. There's a gang of looters. Mm. (laughs) There's just a lot of drama. (laughs) You got all of history to choose from, you know, like pick some good stories, right? (laughs) (laughs) Who knew that uh, the Bank of Italy and Ikea and others went through all that? I mean, (laughs) if you go back to the the founding stories, I mean, Comprod, who founded Ikea, his memoirs were heart-wrenching. Like, the guy was crying. He he became probably one of the richest people in the world. It's just Mm. that because Ikea is a private company, nobody ever really, you know, called him out in Forbes or anything. (laughs) But he was terrified and suffering and persecuted. Mm. And, like, he had had a rough go of it. I mean, again— sort of leading to my thesis that innovation is not something that people just wake up one day and say, oh, I'm going to be innovative. It's like, no, no, no. They just kicked you out of your home country and your company's <laughs> going to die and your family's going to starve unless you figure something out fast. That's when you become innovative. So, I mean, there's some tricks to do it that don't require, you know, uh, excommunication, but <laughs> but it helps. It helps to be you know kicked out. Tell me about your relationship history, Jim, with the word entrepreneur, and 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 how how can comprehending what it is not teach us what what it is? Ah, what a what a great and terrible word. First of all, I can never <laughs> spell it. Um, I, I'm serious. I've typed it probably 500 times. I never I never quite get it right. It turns out that it's a beautiful word if you go back in its history, and it's almost a useless word now. In its contemporary usage, entrepreneur means business person. So if you start a coffee shop, if you start an accounting firm, if you start a you know water ski manufacturing factory, uh, you're an entrepreneur. Hey, we manufacture water skis, right? And I'm an entrepreneur because I started a water ski company. Well, guess what, guys? Uh, water skis have been around for a while and their other companies have made water skis. And you're probably not, you probably didn't invent the water ski, right? You mm. probably just made this tiny little refinement to a, a long list of, you know, previous refinements. And so today we would call you an entrepreneur. But a hundred years ago, the economist, uh, Joseph Schumpeter, who popularized the term entrepreneur, didn't use it that way. He used the word entrepreneur to differentiate people who were not business people, Mm. right? So if you're a business person, you were probably sane and making money and accepted (laughs) by society. And you could, you you know, had a banker who would lend you money. You had employees who, you know, would come to work, not terrified. Like you had all these sort of things that were normally 
associated with successful businesses. Okay, cool. And when Schumpeter wanted to talk about the other folks, so, you know, a hundred years ago, like he was talking about the Wright brothers. Okay. Mm. So the Wright brothers were building this contraption that was supposed to fly. Well, humans had never flown. Dozens of people died trying. And here were two bicycle guys uh, trying to build a flying machine. Well, that's when you use the term entrepreneur. <laughs> so I needed to dust off the antiquated usage of the term to even be able to write the book. And mm. I apologize to the readers because I literally spent a you know, couple paragraphs basically saying, I'm sorry, we're going to have to use old English to <laughs> communicate because what I describe in the book is so rarely discussed that we don't even have words for it. Mm. And, and it, it blew my mind when I was, when I was you know, because I was like, Herb told me, I got to write this book. I sat down, started doing it. And I was like, what do I call these people? You know, what mm. do I call these? And, and, I, and I couldn't find a word. There's no word in English. <laughs> and so I started looking and looking and looking. Finally, I stumbled. I was like, oh, wait a second. I'm like, I've been using the word entrepreneur wrong, <laughs> as have we all for a century. Mm. And unfortunately, if you don't have a word, it's hard to have a conversation. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Well, you also question the the teaching of entrepreneurship in, in business schools and share a bit more about the idea that schools kind of focus on the how, but not the when and why that's an important distinction to make. Ah, so, so two big things. Uh, one is I've seen a lot of attempts to teach entrepreneurship in a academic environment, which is really good at teaching how to do stuff that's known. Okay. And I'm a huge believer in education. I grew up in higher education. My father was a dean of the engineering school of Washington University. Like it is the family business. Okay. The deep, deep, deep respect for education. And yet most of what we teach in school is stuff that we already know how to do. Mm. And if you're trying to teach entrepreneurship in its historical definition, i.e. doing something differently, that's not something you could teach in school. Now, what you can do is call it business, you know, Starting a new business, sure, I can start a business as long as it's a copy of something that somebody else knows how to do. <laughs> like as, as long as there's a trade show that I can go to when something goes wrong, uh, as long as there's some expert that I can hire, as long as I can copy my products uh, and services from my competitors and you know tweak things a little bit but not have to do much different. Yeah, cool. <laughs> we can teach that in school. Okay, And if you want to call that entrepreneurship, that's cool because that's kind of how the word's used today. Mm. What about timing? What about the temporal component of success? And mm. if you don't think timing matters, I ask you, you know, to name the first search engine or the second or the third or the 14th, right. you know, because probably you don't even know who the 14th search engine is. But I guarantee you know who the 18th search engine was. <laughs> it was Google. Mm. They were not the first. Uh, same thing with social networks. Facebook was number five or six, depending on whether you count, you know, GeoCities. But there are a bunch of examples through history where it's not only knowing how to do something, it's knowing when to do something. I thought it would be important to, to put a chapter in on timing in the book. And I wrote very earnestly about how important I think timing is. And then I chose to launch the book on March 10th, like literally, <laughs> literally. Hey, COVID. Yeah, the day the world shut down. Like March 9th or 8th would have been a little better because at least the media was still running. The 10th was when they shut the studios. Down. I was literally trying to do a promo for the book in New York and the fire alarm went off. And they cleared out the studio oh, wow. and they were shutting the world down. I picked, after having written a chapter on timing, the worst <laughs> day in a century to launch a new book. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, so maybe you can skip that chapter. <laughs> Well, well, it makes me, uh, or reminds me, I should say, of the discussion in the book on customers who trust you or are more valuable than customers 
who love you. I say it reminds me of that because it was another for me sort of aha or eye-opening moment. I think this comes in the section on describing the differences between, you know, low prices and lowest price. Yes, yes. But but talk a bit about, you know, customers who trust you versus customers who who love you. So interestingly, everyone's trying to, you know, get customers to like them on Facebook or love them in the marketplace or stand in front of their stores. And we sort of venerate love as it's, you know, there's nothing better. Turns out, you know, love can come and go. Trust, you only get once. Mm. You only get one shot at it. Anyone who's uh, ever gotten in trouble for betraying somebody's trust knows that you know, it, it, never, it never comes back. Mm. And so even if you want it to, like even if somebody has betrayed your trust in the past, you want to trust them again, ah, ain't, ain't going to happen, right? <laughs> Most companies do not have customer trust. They may have customer love, but they don't have trust. And they don't have trust for a very good reason. And that is in a competitive environment, you really can't prioritize customer trust very easily because your competitors will do all sorts of creepy things. And it's <laughs> I, I go through a bunch of reasons in the book why that that typically doesn't happen. But innovation stack companies have this weird, massive pricing advantage. They have what economists would call excess value, which is a terrible term because it implies that it's, it's, it's a waste, but it's not. It's, this, it's mm. this thing that allows you to do things in a way that will keep your market yours forever or will allow you to bring such massive value to your customers that you can keep competitors away and make people super happy and make those customers trust you. And that trust, if it's cultivated, it's probably the most powerful thing in the world because like right now, we are so inundated with offers mm. to tempt us to buy this thing. And are you going to buy that? And you know, one of the reasons the, that Apple's now a trillion dollar company is because when I see the Apple logo, you know what I think? I think, well, it's probably overpriced, but <laughs> damn thing's going to work and it's going to be well designed. Mm. Like, that's it. Like, I, it's going to work. I'm going to be able to use it. That's it. And I trust Apple to do that. Right. And if Apple ever puts out something like Windows 95 <laughs> or Microsoft Word or something, well, I mean, I guess you could, maybe <laughs> iTunes. <laughs> maybe I should shut up. <laughs> but at least the stuff that I buy from Apple. Um, but that ability to have a customer trust you is the hardest thing for a customer or a company to achieve. Mm. Well, uh, this has been a great conversation. I have a couple of questions in the, the few minutes we have left, Jim, that I want to ask that aren't directly related to the book. Before I do that, anything I didn't cover uh, that you want to make sure we know or, or walk away with? Uh, just one thing, and that is, uh, uh, the chapter nine is available as a free graphic novel. Oh, yes. So don't feel like you have to, uh, you know, slog through a business book. Uh, <laughs> read a cartoon. You go to jimmckelvey.com. You can get a free copy. Just download it, or I think we may even send you a printed one. I printed some up. Um, but the uh, like, I, I don't want this to seem like a homework assignment. Mm. Like that was the whole thing. Like, <laughs> have fun. And probably the one question you didn't ask is, who did I write the book for? Because yeah, I, I had Herb in mind, but Herb, Herb didn't need to read the book. The person I had in mind was somebody who is incredibly talented. She is somebody who I deeply respect and is brilliant and hardworking. Has all these you know superlative qualities, mm. but. Whenever I see her encounter a problem that she's never solved before and nobody has solved before, she quits. She disqualifies her. She'll say, I can't do that. I'm not qualified to do that. And, and, and my answer to her, which is basically what this book is, is, look, you're never going to be qualified to do something for the first time in human history. If you're doing something truly new, by definition, you are not qualified. I can go out today. I can fly an airplane. I can be qualified as a pilot and tested and certified and all that stuff. But the Wright brothers could not be qualified. They couldn't. They had to do it anyway. Mm. And my point to every reader out there is that, look, we all get into this thing where we look at our world and we see something that needs to be done. And then we stop ourselves. You don't even realize how instinctive this is. But we stop ourselves before we step off the edge of what's known. 
And I wrote this book with a person in mind who I just desperately wanted to read this because I think we're wasting her talents. Like I would love to see Mm. her and a million people like her when they come across that problem once a year, once a decade, like when it shows up on their doorstep, they don't disqualify themselves automatically. Now, they could look at it and go, well, I read McKelvey's book and I know that that's not for me. Fine. Good. (laughs) But at least make an informed choice. Don't just sit there and automatically say, I can't do it because it's never been done. Well, that leads me to uh, one of my favorite quotes from the book, the second to last page of the book. And Jim prefaces this with, I hope the book helps you or someone you know take the first step and many more. The next paragraph, and this is my favorite quote, but now that you've read the book, you've lost something as well. You can no longer look at a problem and say, nothing can be done. You can't even say, I can't do it because I'm lacking fill in the blank. You can only say either I'm not going to do anything or I am going to solve this problem. Yeah. Look, the only reason... For me to put myself through the hell of writing and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting was to hopefully get a message out. And so, like, honestly, I mean, Penguin probably cares if you steal the book. I don't care if you steal the book. (laughs) Steal the book. Xerox, I don't, whatever. But like, if you can get the idea out or, or, or this is, this is the thing that I always say to people is, look, you may not be the right reader for this book, but you'll know somebody who is. Mm. You, you will know somebody who's, who's like, oh man, if I could just get that person just a little bit more able to work outside of what they already know how to do. Mm. Boy, that'd be great for the world. And we need a lot more people like that. Mm. Agreed. Well, um, as someone who is called upon to speak quite often, or at least uh, pre-COVID was, you're someone who I believe, in my opinion, has gotten pretty good at that. Uh, Jim, what might be some of your tips for uh, delivering an impactful and uh, memorable uh, public talk? Oh, great question. Um, Sit through a bunch before you start talking. (laughs) So the way I got into it, was I was a audience member. I had another company that did uh, conference work. And so I had to go to a lot of conferences and I had to sit through these things. And they're terrible. They're <laughs> boring. They're condescending. They're just, they're humorless and dry and mm. bleh. And I just sat there one day. I was, I almost chucked a dinner roll at the speaker. She was so bad. I had this roll in my hand. It was one of those ones where, you know, with the little sesame seeds on the outside. I was like, I can just get a sesame seed in this bastard's eye. I'd be happy. And, and I sat there and then I, I got asked to do a speech and I wasn't very good. But after the speech, you know, people came up to me and they're like, that was great. And I was like, what do you mean? That was terrible. I was horrible. <laughs> I, I, I stunk it up. I forgot half the stuff I was going to say, and I stuttered and I blah. And and it turns out that there's a lot. There's a there's a really low standard in public speaking. Mm. So if you want to get into public speaking, just be sympathetic to the audience. Wow. Just be sit in the audience and think, wow, that's boring. Wow, I wish I had a fast forward button on this. <laughs> and and then when you get up there and it's your turn to be the boring person, don't do it. Like be your own fast forward button. If if they if it's getting dry, like who cares about the transition? Who cares about section three? Like, mm. you know, can they read that graph from the 40th row? No, they can't. Next slide, please. Like just be sympathetic to the fact that they're humans in the audience. Have some fun with them. And and don't be afraid if you make a mistake, because the audiences are pretty sympathetic. So that, that'd be my thing. And, and, and by the way, it's terrifying. I, I always get scared when I get up in front of an audience. Yeah, I always get the butterflies. Though. That's great advice. So I love that. Thank you so much. I know you took a break from reading business books out of necessity as you were writing your book, but I still want to ask what might be a book or two over the course of your career, if there are any that stand out to you as having had a big impact on you. And maybe they're ones that you occasionally go back to. Um, I read The E-Myth back in 1987, oh, standing yeah. in Foyle's bookstore in London. I couldn't <laughs> afford the book, so I'd go there every day. I'd stand and read a chapter. Oh, wow. So I, I think I owe Michael Gerber uh, 20 bucks. <laughs> uh, 
with interest, but I read his book and I never bought it. And I stood in it. It was a great book. And if you don't have time to read it, the basic premise is entrepreneurs, like if you start doing something that you're good at and turn it into a company, you don't have enough time to do the thing you're good at, which mm-hmm. <laughs> was like my life. Uh, I think Malcolm Gladwell's a fantastic writer. I love reading his stuff. Michael Lewis and Malcolm Gladwell, I'm just like, oh God, you know, it's just <laughs> fantastic, fantastic stuff. Bob Caldini, Persuasion, current favorite book just alchemy of the mind. Hmm. And then I just go back to history, you know, anything that Churchill wrote, yeah. gold. You know, the man probably saved the world. I'm not hyperbolic. I, I don't disagree with that. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to give you a chance too, before we wrap up here, Jim, to share about anything you've got coming up that you're working on that you want us to know about or, or anything about uh, either launch code or invisibly or third degree glass factory that we should know about. Well, I'll, I'll talk about Launch Code. It's a nonprofit I started seven years ago. If you happen to live in St. Louis or another city where Launch Code is, or if you don't and want to take our classes online, we will give you a free education, uh, teach you how to program computers. It takes about six months, and then we'll get you a job mm-hmm. uh, at a market rate, which uh, starting salaries for beginning programmers with no experience, about 60K. They get six figures after a year or two. Uh, the cool thing about Launch Code is it's completely free and open to everybody. Mm. The uncool thing about Launch Code is because it's free, we don't tone it down. So you got to handle the material. Mm. But it's a great way, and we have had phenomenal success. I mean, I'm very proud of what we've done at Square. I love what Square's been doing. But I'll tell you, I think Launch Code has probably had more impact on people's lives. It's just breathtaking to see what it'll what it'll do because so many people and again maybe this is you know sort of getting back to the theme of the innovation stack which is that i see people disqualifying themselves who shouldn't be disqualifying themselves like oh you left the workforce uh to take care of a sick relative or Mm. raise a kid and now you're trying to get back and all of a sudden the job market sucks and you don't think you can become a programmer well guess what? There's a two thirds chance you're right. Okay. About one in three people is sort of good at programming and the other two thirds, sorry, we really can't do much with you. Mm. But if you're in that one third, and by the way, it's hard to tell without doing a little bit of it. If you're in that one third, it's easy. We can teach you. (laughs) It's free. You got no excuse and we'll get you the job. So uh, launchcode.org, it's a great organization. There's no tricks. If, if you're if you're in that group that sort of is naturally inclined to thinking like a computer does, booyah, it's phenomenal and free to all. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. Uh, the book, again, is called The Innovation Stack, Building an Unbeatable Business One Crazy Idea at a Time. I highly recommend it. Check out launchcode.org uh, as well. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for uh, being a part of the show. I really appreciate it. Jeff, thanks so much. Great questions. A lot of fun. I think one of the biggest takeaways for me from that conversation is the idea of not counting yourself out just because something hasn't been accomplished before, hasn't been successfully executed or launched, doesn't mean that you can't be the person to actually make it happen. For more on our conversation, again, the show notes page can be found at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 336 for episode 336. And if you have comments, suggestions, questions, or feedback from me, you can write me directly, Jeff, at readtoleadpodcast.com. Waiting in the wings, we have Dr. Michelle Deering. We'll talk a bit about her book, What Mothers Never Tell Their Daughters, Five Keys to Building Trust, Restoring Connection, and Strengthening Relationships. And we'll spend some additional time specifically on relationships and race relations as well. That's coming up in a few weeks here on the podcast. Keeping with the relationship theme, we'll be checking in too with Susie Miller, author of Listen, Learn, Love, How to Dramatically Improve Your Relationships in 30 Days or Less. And on deck for next week is Al Como. 
He's the former vice president of Travelocity and change champion at GE and American Airlines. He's written a book called Change the Management, Why We as Leaders Must Change for the Change to Last. Again, that's next week here on the Read to Lead podcast. Well, that's it for this week. Hope to see you next time. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. 